Welcome to the Digital Workplace Podcast. These are conversations with CEOs of digital companies, thought leaders, and solution providers about how you can become a level five digital workplace. For the show notes and transcript of this episode, go to thedigitalworkplace.com. Welcome back to the Digital Workplace Podcast. Today, our guest is Diana Wu David. She's the author of Future Proof, Reinventing Work in the Age of Acceleration. Hi, Diana. How are you today? Fantastic. So nice to be here, Neil. Before we get into our conversation, let's do a check-in round question. Today's check-in question is, what are you willing to wake up early to do? Well, it's funny you say that because it is December 2nd in Hong Kong, where I live. And uh, I promised my three kids that I would put a clue and basically a day-by-day treasure hunt into our advent calendar. So I've been already for the last two days waking up early and, and sort of lamenting the fact that I promised that to put in the clues and hide the, hide the little whatever they have that they get the, the, after they find the, the clue. <laughs> That's great. So you're willing to wake up early to be magical, right? Yes, I will wake up early to be magical. That's a very good reframing. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that a lot. I usually wake up early anyway to start work, but I feel like I've been doing some meditation and contemplative prayer practices in, in the morning. I found that to be really helpful. And so, yeah, waking up an extra 10 minutes early to be able to do that has been worth it. In general, I think a better question for me is what am I willing to stay up late to do, which is, is very little these days. I, if something's going on at 11 p.m., like it's, it's probably not going to happen at this stage in my life. <laughs> Same here. All right, well, let's get into your book, Future Proof, which is all about reinventing work, which is obviously a big topic for us. Uh, Tell us about the book, what prompted you to write it, and what's been your response so far? Well, I spent most of my career doing some kind of uh, navigating disruption or helping people in disruption as a management consultant in the mid-90s and in actual companies and investing in companies. And uh, really, I came to this moment where I had launched a new uh, product or revenue stream for Financial Times as a corporate development and corporate entrepreneur um, executive there. And all of these folks were super senior executives, and they were just baffled by the fact that they'd have another 30 years, the fact that they were thinking about their company, but not really thinking about what the future of work meant for them. And everything was changing about work to make it, in my opinion, more possible uh, for us to have a vibrant work life that, uh, that could include the folks that were senior executives that were looking at their second act. So there's three themes that your book brings up that I find really interesting to think about. First is the fact that, one, work can be better. Work, we can make improvements. We can enjoy work more. Second, though, is that we tend to start to work more in these shorter stints, you know, maybe five years at some place or or so. It's it's very rare to hear somebody working in 30 years at somewhere. So we we have like the shorter stints going on, but we also have the idea of longevity. People are perhaps in some cases living Mm -hmm. longer or perhaps working longer. So how do we navigate all three of those themes that are going on at the same time? Well, I don't think that we're necessarily going to be doing more of it, although I noticed the World Economic Forum puts self-management into its categories of future skills. So I think that we're just going to um, slice and dice what we do into uh, more tours of duty or oscillations. So rather than spending all this time learning until we're in our mid-20s or whatever time you stop, 
we're going to maybe start work a little earlier, be more experimental, um, have an opportunity to do multiple different kinds of work. I mean, work sounds like drudgery if you think I'm going to be doing 60 years and the thing I do on day one is the same thing I'll do on, you know, six years later. But if you think about doing something and then taking time off for extended sabbaticals to refresh or to take care of your loved ones or, you know, to, to do something different or to, to re-skill and, and re-educate yourself, then it's more of a marathon and, and not a sprint. Uh, so I do think that that's going to be open up all kinds of opportunities for people to do more than they thought they would be able to. So I know your book is mostly geared towards people who are in that kind of second act phase that you mentioned before. But let's talk to somebody who's at the beginning of their career. What would you tell them and what advice would you give them as they think about how to build this long work life? Uh, should they be thinking more in terms of a five-year plans and projects that go through and just see what comes next? Or what advice would you give? Well, I think they're in a similar boat because I remember doing my TED talk about kind of getting off the treadmill. And the the surprising thing was how many people in their 20s came up and said, thank you, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Um, And they already uh, either are following a path that isn't making them super happy and, and feel a little nervous to step off of it because they they feel like if there's only a one-way escalator and if you step off, you step off forever. Um, and so I think that that some, some people are just learning that. But a lot of people who are just starting their careers um, really do know that their network is everything, that they can, they can craft their own jobs, that if they can provide value, then they can figure out what they want to do next. Uh, it's much less about responding to, you know, a cookie cutter job ad. I think that they are um, looking at themselves and the narrative as they build uh, their work so that they can think about how whatever they're doing now will add value to the next job. And and um, I spoke to somebody today who's just out of university and said, asked her about personal brand. And she said, oh yeah, I knew that. And then I did my first job out of college was with an art gallery. So I told them this, and then I reframed it and went on to, I was thinking, my God, it's taken me like decades to learn this and she's already doing it from the the get-go. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think it's important that we recognize it's not just about age. You know, you could be young or old and it's about that mindset of, of thinking that, okay, there's just one escalator you have to get on to have a successful career. And once you break that spell, no matter how old you are, it's it's scary to do it. But once you break that spell, you realize that there's more ways to invent your own work, to do what you want to do. And the real power of your career is in your own network. So yeah, this is not just about young, young versus old people, but just it's really a mindset shift. And to be fair, I don't think that education right now necessarily prepares people with those kind of skills. I don't think we have to say necessarily. I think we could just say it doesn't prepare. (laughs) So, you know, either... People who at any level are starting to think, in fact, one of the things that came out of the book was people saying, yeah, I want that. Um, And there are exercises in my book, but they wanted to have a community. And it was interesting and as an experiment kind of in the future of work um, about gathering together people who all want to learn something similar in the community to help each other out. And I spent most of you know my career in digital disruption and transformation and it was really interesting because we talk about psychological safety as a way to bring ideas to the fore. And what we created was really 
a group of people and that same kind of psychological um, safety to bring their own personal ideas for their careers or for their projects to the fore um, so that they could get feedback in a safe environment so that they could then, you know, go out and launch something that had that was better than what they first anticipated or, or maybe even not because they, um, they, they decided to do something slightly different based on the feedback they received. Yeah. Diana, let's speak to CEOs out there who are trying to understand this issue from their vantage point. They want to provide a great place for people to work, but also recognize that maybe they're not going to be working there for more than five years or so, or maybe the company won't even be around 20 years from now. How can CEOs continue to encourage people to look at their careers as very flexible and things they can work with, but you'd also not constantly have a revolving door of people coming in and out? What kind of advice would you give there? I think that transparency is really coming to the fore in terms of that conversation, the recruiting um, and retention conversation where people are saying, you know, managers or HR leaders or CEOs are saying, okay, look, we're growing exponentially. You know, your skill set may not grow exponentially. We need you for the um, startup phase because you're amazing at, at marketing in that particular phase for whatever we're doing. Um, but this is probably going to be two years, you know, or whatever amount of time it might be. And really being honest about that conversation, because it could be longer than that. But as long as you're willing to commit to um, the learning, I think learning is really the new loyalty uh, and has eclipsed job security. If you can say to somebody, you're going to learn so much that whatever you do next is going to be exponentially better, or, or that you're going to be really well positioned, then I think people are on board. They're willing to know um, that they can come, they can work hard for a little bit, and they can, you know, learn enough skills to take away for the next challenge uh, and contribute enough to, to feel good about what belonging to that company. So um, that's something I see that's happening. It, it's happening in small companies. It's happening in large companies. And it's great because a lot of people in companies, they do their two years and they're ready to do something else. And oftentimes it's the company who says, oh, no, you're doing it really well. Can you just keep doing that? We'll hire somebody else to do, you know, the fun new stuff that we need. So I I think that that's really the way it's going to be. Or maybe you don't have to hire them at all. Maybe they just come in to do some contract work. But I think that the kind of contract is the same. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. And I think transparency is important. And even maybe before that, we also need to have that honesty, like you're saying, just look around, read the room, be honest with yourself and figure out how long people typically stay in roles in your company before they transition to a new role or transition to a different company or whatever that is. And really being honest about that just in your own views as you look at it. Diana, there's a point in your book that I really liked where you talked about that learning is the new loyalty. Can you unpack that for us? Well, if your skills are, you know, ultimately what you're carrying forward, you can, in the past, you would have your college degree and then you would have your different titles and you would go up the corporate hierarchy. As you said, that, you know, the positions are not actually um, lasting that long, but neither are companies. So, in fact, uh, what we are left with is an bunch of skills that we have to think about, maybe applying in new ways. Uh, And so the acquisition of those skills, the sort of experiential learning on the job, 
um, is really valuable. So that is just as valuable in terms of your career as, you know, you got a 10% jump in pay or you got a title. Those things ultimately are declining in relevance. Um, and, and what is more valuable is the promise that you're going to work on an amazing project with people you can learn from. And, you know, at the end of it, you'll have something that you can apply going forward. Um, people are, I think people are, uh, you know, across the spectrum in terms of their desire to learn. But rather than just necessarily saying, you know, okay, we're going to put you in a professional development program so you can then be part of this company. It's about, we're going to develop you professionally by having you work on these great projects that allow you to move forward into new and interesting opportunities. Maybe in the company, maybe not, who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love this. So in our earlier conversation, you brought up the term learning by force, which we applied to what happened, you know, back in February and March this past year, when people were forced to learn how to upgrade their systems and work in a digital workplace environment. So what do you think the lingering effects of that is going to be when it comes to digital transformation? Will this learning by force kind of prompt them on to want to learn more and to take this to the next level? Or will there always kind of be this bad aftertaste of all the digital uh, transformations that we had to endure because of uh, what happened in 2020? Well, there's two countervailing forces. One is that those people who didn't think that it was possible to do remote work or were scared of it, you know, they've done it. Like the genie's out of the bottle. We've all done this. And so um, that fear factor is by and large not there. Um, What people will do with that, what CEOs will do with that in terms of deciding when in-person communication is useful and when being a remote worker is useful um, and what that balance is, is for them, you know, for each company, it'll be different. Um, I do think in 2021 or, you know, when people are able to go back into the workforce that, uh, that people will really want to be together. So I, I think that this is a longer term play where, you know, we'll be able to go back to work if we haven't already. Um, we'll be very grateful for that. Then that too will maybe lose its luster a bit as we remember that all the office politics and, you know, in, in our office, it was always like somebody leaving something in the kitchen or the refrigerator that smelled bad, whatever. You'd be like, I could just be at home. I don't have to deal with this. Um, but the reality is that uh, that has shaken things up. So now it's something that proactive um, managers and CEOs will really have to think about because it could completely, you know, change their operations and potentially their strategy. You can hire somebody from from anywhere uh, if that if remote work is your thing. Uh, so if you're not if you're just going back to the same thing, you're wasting a good crisis. Yeah. And like you said earlier, this is like the spell has been unbroken. Like if people decide to go back to the office, that's great because they're deciding that that's works best for them either every day or on a a particular schedule. But there's really no more wondering if this can work. Like uh, I'm sure it's been really tough for some companies and much easier for others, but everyone knows that there's potential here. Like this can work and we can't really go back and not learn that. So it's always going to be an option now. Every single person has tried it. And I think that's really uh, amazing because there are other things. When I left my full-time corporate job, one of the the amazing things was that I could work remotely. And I thought, God, why didn't somebody 
you know, make this up earlier. I got like dial into meetings. I have a shared Google calendar. You know, I show up in person once a month and, and, you know, it seems like it's working just as well as before. Um, but you know, so it's not new at all, but the difference is that every single person has, has tried it now. Um, and now we'll, we'll invent something new as we go forward. I do also think that people have to be more flexible, right? It's not, I've been in and out of the office. We're in, in Hong Kong, we're on our fourth wave, you know, it's like, my, my kids have been in and out of school. They've broken it up four times in the last 12 months, if you include some of the, the protests. So, you know, this at this kind of back and forth, you have to be prepared for uh, for anything, I guess. As you mentioned, you are in Hong Kong, which changes things, both from a cultural dynamic and just from a timeline dynamic in, in the sense of a lot of things in, in Hong Kong have been happening maybe sooner than the rest of the world. So what can we learn from what you're experiencing there? Well, I've been here 20 years, and in that time, I've seen this, um, you know, rise from the, in particular, China, but other business schools that I speak to uh, about the Eastern philosophy of management. And I don't know, you know, entirely how true that is, but there is a more collectivist culture in most Asian countries, and it is um, manifesting itself in companies like Hire with the, uh, the new management model that they've put forward, which is eight people centered around a customer and, you know, operating autonomously. And the president talks about, um, the CEO talks about how that's just an ecosystem. So in a collectivist society, you know, you can have ecosystems with different autonomous units. And he has talked about the fact that the whole idea of the Western empire, which is very hierarchical, um, is too rigid and it's crumbling. Um, I think that, you know, there's so many different ways and there's there's uh, different ways to organize a company and you see it in the West, you see it in the East. Um, I do think that there is um, a premium on agility for a lot of companies here, partly because they don't have a giant homogeneous market like the United States. So even for me in my career, talking to an executive recruiter, she said, you know, the great thing about you is that you have been a regional director across APAC. You've had 17 markets, 17 different currencies, prices, cultures. I mean, it's like, you know, five-dimensional chess. And she said, your counterpart in the U.S., however, has managed, you know, a $3 billion department or something because it's such a vast market. So I do think that in a way that makes um, that makes people who have been here more agile because they have worked across so many different markets. And that is something that I think that kind of agility and, and that ecosystem is something that the U.S. could learn from and maybe study and, and see how that might work if things in the U.S. were more decentralized or um, fluid. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of times we don't realize how homogenous we are in the United States, even with such a huge geography, a uh, space to fill up. It's still very similar from one coast to the other and throughout the middle. So it's, that's a really good uh, reminder to think about that as we interact with other cultures too. Well, Diana, it's been great to interact with you and we can learn a lot more from you, I'm sure. But where can people go to learn more about you and your book? They can go to uh, download a free future-proof checklist, which is 11 questions. Perfect timing to, to think about your future. And that's at bit.ly 
forward slash prepare for future. And they can download the book for the first uh, two chapters free at Diana Wu David, D-I-A-N-A-W-U-D-A-V-I-D.com forward slash future proof. Great. And we will put all those links in the show notes. Diana, it's been really fun to talk with you and been really insightful. You have a lot of great things to share and we look forward to collaborating with you more in the future. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. This has been the Digital Workplace Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to leave a review wherever you find Go to thedigitalworkplace.com and sign up for our twice a month newsletter. It keeps you up to date on the best ways to build a level five digital workplace. Music for the show is provided by City of Sound. I'm your host, Neil Miller. Keep moving forward.